this morning, I want to continue with where we've been the last few weeks, uh, really looking at coming into a new year, this idea that, for the most part, people, we don't, we don't see a lot of difference year after year after year in our lives. Uh, we often want some kind of change, or what change we want can move uh, as time goes on. But as we kind of looked at things, one of the things we looked at is we really don't, although we might want to change, we might talk about changing, but there's a cost to change. There's always a cost to change. And I think we want to change, and we'll talk about it, but the idea of what it's going to cost is something we kind of stay away from. Uh, when I used to work at a flight school, people would call and say, well, uh, how much money does it cost to get a pilot's license? And that's like saying, you know, how much does it cost to play a guitar? Well, do you want to play, you know, something that uses two chords? Uh, do you want to play like somebody that Jeff Beck or somebody like that? What do you, what do you call playing a guitar? Because it could cost anywhere from, you know, $20 to some unlimited amount of money uh, to get that good. When I was uh, in teaching, they would get a call and I would say, well, if you want to get a private pilot certificate, if you want to be able to go up and fly yourself around in a single engine airplane, that will probably cost you about $6,000. $6,000. $6,000? I said, well, it really doesn't stop there because that's just the privilege to come out every month and pay a lot more money to keep that current. Now, that isn't really an airplane that can really go somewhere. Uh, you can go to San Antonio for an extreme amount of money. You can go to Dallas for a great deal of money. You can go to Galveston for less money. But at the end of the day, the $6,000 will be dwarfed by what it costs you to be a pilot. So becoming a pilot is a big cost, but it's nothing compared to being a pilot. But do you know, most people never ask that question. Here's what they ask. Hey, I want to become a pilot. What does it cost to fly? Well, it costs X amount per hour for the airplane, X amount for the instructor. $100, okay, I can do that. And then the next day, it's $100. And then that week, they spent $300. And then they get to do that again the next week, and the next week, and the next week. And after a while, they don't have any money left. And they're one of these many people that when you talk to them, they oh, yeah, I, I was learning to fly for a while. I got like 32 hours. Ask them why they quit. They ran out of money. This is the nature of faith as well. What does it cross, cost to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus? Well, you can't earn it. You can't buy it. 
You can't barter for it. But it costs you everything. That's what it costs. And it's not everything today. It's just everything. Forever. It's everything. So we're, as we talked about this idea, then the real issue is not what it costs. Because that's kind of a big number, isn't it? The question is, what is it worth? What is being a believer worth? I was reading something by Dallas Willard uh, in an amazing book called The Great Omission. And he addresses this age-old question that I have heard so often. And it's when you talk about being a disciple, following Jesus, focusing on Jesus, uh, letting Jesus transform and change who you are to be somebody different and reflective of who he is. Somewhere along the way, it sounds heavy. It sounds like a lot. And so the question comes, but if, if it's all a gift from God and I accept and I receive him, do you really have to do all of that? I mean, is it absolutely imperative? Do you have to do all that? Will I still go to heaven if I don't do that? It's always been a tough question. I liked his answer. He said, I don't know, probably. How do you feel about spending the rest of eternity with someone that you really had no interest spending a short amount of time on earth with? What does it seem like that you value him and his ways and his love and his relationship and what he offers to the extent that you would want to do that for all eternity, but you really don't want to be held to any relationship with him now. I thought about that and I thought, you know, I'm going to spend all eternity with someone that I'm not interested in spending any time with right now. Doesn't that sound a little creepy? I thought, I don't want to be a person that says, you know, it's like, it's like going out with someone you really don't like, you don't like spending time with them, but you're going to marry them. It's like, if you don't like dating them, don't marry them. So as we, as we look at what is the value, what, is, what does Jesus bring and the scripture reveals that he brings us this restoration of who we always were created to be. He restores us with the Father. He, he begins to restore us to the character and the person that we were originally created to be. Not this wandering soul, but someone who truly is found in their substance, their they, knew, they know who they are. In a broken world or not in a broken world, they become who they really are. And they, thir- they thrive and they flourish in that. So we talked about this hamster wheel issue. Oh, back up. This hamster wheel issue that life just continues to go. And, and we may or may not, these little changes come, 
but that most changes are actually external. Uh, they're actually uh, something happens on the outside that forces you to change. You know, your drinking becomes a problem, and it forces a change. A divorce forces a change. The former worship pastor of the Houston Vineyard, his daughter is in her early 20s, passed away this week. Beautiful young lady. It will force a change in Chad's life. It will force a change. His life is different now. It will forever be different. External things force change. The question is, is that the design that Jesus was after? That the only way we actually change, the only way that we take a real account of our life is in crisis. And then we wonder why crisis seems to be what is always in our life. Yet change comes difficult for us without crisis. We're really much... uh, We have much more difficulty taking up the things we really wish we would take up or laying down the things we wish we would lay down without something forcing our hand. So we have to truly consider the cost of following Jesus because I think it makes us really consider the value. What is the alternative? The alternative, you just kind of live your life. Has the cost prevented the real change of following Jesus? So that in our churches today, we have created this two-tier system of Christianity. We have Christians, and that's people who have made a confession of faith about Jesus Christ. And then we have this upper level of people who actually strive to follow Jesus. But that's not in the Scripture. That's not in the Scripture. Nowhere in the scripture will you see this defense of, you know, don't judge me. Don't judge me. The minute I hear that from somebody in the church, here's what I, here's what I know. They're in trouble. They're in real trouble. They're worried about me judging them. Don't judge me. Why would you care what I think? Why would it be of particular interest to you whether I judge you or not? The real question is, how does Jesus look at my life? How does he see my thoughts, my behaviors, my actions, my motives? Those are the things. I won't, you won't answer to me. I won't answer to you. And it'll be very difficult to look into the eyes of Jesus and say, hey, don't judge me. I guess you could. So as we begin to look at that cost, and if we decide and if we believe, there is one level and there is a reality in the truth of our life that we were called to run with Jesus. 
that your finest hour, your finest moment, when you look back at your life, when you look back at 2014, do you say, wow, that was a really tough year. I'm really glad to be out of 2014. You know, uh, the losses were heavy. I'm out of it. I'm into 2015. My thought is, you're in big trouble. Those are just days on a calendar. You didn't get out of 2000 anything. You're in your life. It's your life. And if we look back on 2014 or 2013 and it is anchored and it is marred with tragedy or ill effects or bad news and we're just wanting to get away from bad news when the reality is we were designed and created to flourish in all news. We were designed to live a whole and a complete and a powerful life in all circumstances. We are missing the point. If we are trying to escape tragedy in this life, to escape loss, and to have a good 2015. What does a good 2015 look like? I didn't lose a job. I didn't lose money. I, I didn't lose a kid. I didn't get a car repossessed. I have some money in the bank. I'm getting along with my spouse. How are you doing with Jesus? How are you doing in finding your way and who you are? Finding your destiny, your purpose. The reality of your existence has a purpose. I remember uh, I was in Bogota for a conference. Uh, it was very violent in Colombia at that time. And we had a group from our church in Medellin who were traveling up. They traveled by bus. There were like 30 of them. These are all poor people. And they're all coming up to go to this conference. They're all going to sleep on, like, in, they got like a hotel room one, and everybody's going to sleep in this hotel room. And when they got there, they were just so excited to be there, and, and they were going on about how amazed they are. Man, we are, a, we are at the show. We're a part of the conference. Uh, we're, we're engaging in the reality of who we are, and they were just on and on and on. And it wasn't until later that night that I found out that on the way up, the gorillas stopped the bus, robbed them of every penny they had everything at gunpoint they are being robbed and abused and threatened and in our conversation at Denny's it never came up how is that possible how is it possible that your bus is hijacked there are people with automatic weapons in your face they are taking like those little um, earrings out of your one-year-old's ear. We have people that would be in therapy the rest of their life after that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's a wrong thing. I'm saying that tragedy did not mar the day for our brothers and sisters from Medellin. 
Their eye was on the prize. It was not on the cost, but it was on what they gained. It was on the prize. And so often we in the church are so focused on the cost of following Jesus that we fail to really appreciate the prize. And I think we back off the second the cost. I mean, except for costs that we can't fix, right? I mean, there's costs that we feel like, I would fix that if I could. I can't, so I'm stuck with that cost. But God, it's coming out of your account, and trust me, I'm noticing. I feel it, and I want you to know it. But our brothers and sisters from Medellin, they knew the cost. They knew that cost before they left Medellin because every bus was stopped between Medellin and Bogota. Every bus. But they didn't have the money to fly. But you see, they wanted to play. And they played. You see, it's not always easy to understand how to do that. That's not something that we are, we are trained in. Um, this message is about examples. And I use uh, Google and YouTube. How many of us learn how to do things on YouTube and just Google it? You know? Um, you know, we, we Google what's wrong with us. What's wrong with our car? Um, I was talking to somebody this week. He took his computer out into his truck. He's rebuilding the heater in his truck. He's got YouTube playing. He's doing everything it tells him to do. And he was successful. Probably a marginal mechanic. I don't know that that's true. <laughs> but, but what is the point is... He had to follow an example. We're used to doing that in other things. And to follow Jesus is the same way. And the scripture calls us to the fact that we need them. We need examples on how to do that. To not be religious, but to be transformed religiously. And so we look at the scripture, and it calls us to follow examples, to look for examples and follow them. My question would be, if you are looking to be somebody different as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus in 2015, if you want that to be different, have you picked out your examples? Have you picked out people around you? Have you picked out people in the scripture? This is going to be my YouTube I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take John in the Bible. And he's going to be my YouTube. Or you might pick Paul. You might be a Puritan and say, why would I pick them? I'm going to pick Jesus. Great. Pick Jesus. 
I think it's great. Pick Jesus. If you feel like that's a pure approach to changing your life, take Jesus. Paul would be great with that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, if you struggle with that, or if you need somebody physical to look at, watch me. Follow my example as I follow the example of Jesus. Do you need a human being to watch? Focus on me. That's where I'm going. Are there people in your life who are the examples that you are willing to submit to an example of life? Ah, that stings, doesn't it? Just a little bit. That word submit. I'm going to submit to an example of a peer. I'm going to allow another person, just like if you're watching YouTube and it says, put this in first into the recipe before this. And you do it. And you do it that way. And if somebody does it backwards, you say, oh, no, no, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. Does it matter? I don't know, but it says to do it this way. So we're going to do it this way. Who is your example? Who are your examples that you're willing to submit to looking at their life, listening to their thinking and saying, I'm going to do that. I'm going to do it that way. That's what I'm going to do. That's going to be the way I approach it. Who are your examples? You're going to need them. You're going to need some examples. And the way we can pick our examples is we compare them to the examples we have in the Scripture. And the examples we have are not just... um, You know, read your Bible every day. But they're real practical examples. We'll take our first one out of James. Patience in suffering. Oh, there's an example everybody loves. Please, show me how to be patient in suffering. Well, you start with some suffering. That's where we begin that journey. And if you're short of suffering, just wait a little bit. Suffering will come along. You will have some real suffering that you can practice with. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. This is the NIV. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's uh, coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop. Oh, be patient. You hear that? Starting out with, the end is when the Lord comes, all right? If you want to talk, it's not when your life gets better. It's not when she finally stops doing that. But it's when the Lord comes. That's the punchline. You see how it just kind of expanded like, now we have lots of time to wait on them to get better. We're only waiting till the Lord comes. Patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. 
you to be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Now, when it says that, it's, it's saying it like this. It's backing up into time. The Lord's coming is near. That's what Jesus said. When this happens, when you experience his presence, when he heals you, when you pray, when these things are happening, that engagement of working with the Father, what Jesus called that, is this is the kingdom of God near. This is me near. When we say, come Holy Spirit, and we pray for someone to be healed. And the language Jesus uses in that case is, the kingdom, or Jesus, is near. Stand firm, because the power is right here. The coming of the Lord, out there, for you guys it's out there. Wherever that is, it is coming near into the moment with you. It is coming into the moment. That's why we can stand firm in the waiting. We can stand firm in the patience. It's saying, this is how you do suffering. We're able to stand in it. We're able to flourish in it. We're able to grow in it. We're able to operate at our highest level in the middle of suffering. There used to be a saying, what was it? It's hard to fly like e- soar like eagles when you're surrounded by turkeys. That's just an excuse. You're always surrounded by turkeys. You will forever be surrounded by turkeys in this life. So if you're going to soar like an eagle, you better figure out how to do it with turkeys. Be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters. Don't grumble against one another in your suffering. Or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience... In the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. He's saying, use the prophets as an example of perseverance in suffering. Use Job. Look at the examples in the scripture of those who stood strong in the truth in suffering. Do you know somebody around you who has stood strong in the faith, who has been focused on Christ in suffering, who has been victorious in the day-to-day suffering of life? What Jesus is saying is let them show you how it's done. Why don't you ask them, how do you do that? How do you remain kind to people who are ugly? How do you do that? How does it work 
Be an example for me. Show me the way. I desire to learn to be patient and victorious in suffering. Will you help me? We need those. Does it mean they are perfect? Doesn't mean they are completely figured out. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means that they have a good way, that they have demonstrated success in being godly and flourishing in suffering. That's what it means. It means that they are another human being with the same ailments, the same weaknesses, the same sinful struggle as the rest of us, but somehow they are doing it. And we too can follow their example. An example, injustice. Living in injustice. I had somebody ask me, what does injustice mean? Oh, it means this. It means you got screwed over. It means it wasn't fair. It means it wasn't right. It means that you were used. It means that you were abused. It means you were taken advantage of. It means you were left out. It means you were lied to. Justice means that you were not treated fairly on whatever level. Peter shares with us in 1 Peter in chapter 2, 18 through 25. He starts with slaves. These are people who live in an entire world. Their entire existence is captured in injustice. It's not right for a human being to be owned by another human being. Peter begins his example there. Those of you who have a life of injustice, an existence of injustice... In reverent fear of God, submit yourself to your masters. Who wants to follow Peter now? Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Now who wants to follow Peter? For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering. But they are conscious of God. It is a powerful, powerful thing. To not be a victim of injustice. But that your awareness and your consciousness of God empowers you to be kind to your boss, your enemy, the one who calls you slave. 
one who is indignant towards you, who counts you as less than they are. It's saying, if you will focus on God, if you will focus on Jesus in this moment, if you will let that be the victory that is greater than the cost, it will be a powerful, powerful win for you in the world. If you will let them, being your master and treating you harshly and unjustly, if you will let that be the gorillas who storm the bus and rob you and threaten your life, and you will focus on the power and the presence of God, then you will win. You will become the example. Goes on in verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and enduring it? It always sounds slightly noble. Well, I did the crime. I got to do the time. How is that noble? How about if you didn't do the crime and you were doing time? It's building a case that in that moment, in that spot, where you were unjustly suffering for something you didn't do, is the key moment that God can transform and change you. This is the beauty of this. It's all about you. It's not about your master. It's not about your boss. It's not about your ex-spouse. It's not about your brother or sister who took all the money. It's all about you. God is saying, if you will allow these circumstances, as grave as they may look, as unjust as they may look, if you will allow a moment for me to be the focus and not that injustice, if you will make the declaration in that moment, I focus on my Jesus, my Lord, in that moment, that thing that injustice will lose its power to define you as a victim. It will lose its power to describe you as its own, as one of its converts. And in that moment, you stand as an example of the kingdom of God and the power and the presence of the Most High God in your life. In that moment, you will be set free. That's what Peter is describing. He's describing the cost and the gift. What does it cost to be someone who thrives in injustice? What does it cost? Here's what it costs. You see how the cost is high? It looks high, doesn't it? Most people look at those verses, they read quick, get through that. But God wants you to slow down in these verses and take in, yes, the cost is high, but what you will get will be the prize that makes the cost grow pale. 
But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now, you know, I know that those words might not sound very impressive to you. This is commendable before God. Like, was that like a little star on my piece of paper? Is that a check? It's commendable before God. The power of that language that it says this is something that when it's put before God, it reflects him. He, when God looks at something and says, now that looks like me. Is there a higher statement that when God judges something to be of the quality and the value of his very person? When you do this, you'll be mirroring the creator of the universe. There is no higher place. When you do that, you've done it all. You become untouchable in that place. Verse 21. To this you were called. This is what you were called to. Call yourself a Christian, a disciple, follower, Blah, blah, blah. It's all the same. This is what you were called to. To mirror your father, the creator of the universe. Because Christ suffered for you. He suffered injustice for you. For me. He was mocked and beaten. He was judged. But he kept his eyes on the Father. And he was commended before God. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. This is our example from Jesus. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We have an example in scripture of how to value life. How do we put the value in life? Where do we place it? 
We talked about this last week in Philippians chapter 3, where Paul says, I have all these religious accomplishments. I excelled beyond anybody in all those things. And they weren't necessarily bad things, but they are all garbage now because I have now evaluated them against the real prize of knowing Jesus and following him. He is up here. Everything else is down here. And then he says in verse 15, all of us then who are mature, all of us who call ourselves Christians, all of us who who declare ourselves to be believers or disciples, that would be the mature, should take such a view. Everything I've done, accomplished, achieved, right here. Jesus and the gospel in me right here. You should have the same view. And if someone point, um, if at some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Verse 17, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Look for the examples. How to do value in life. How do you value things in your life? Your appearance, your health, your money, your job, your friends, your accomplishments. How do you value them? We have an example in speech and in conduct. I call it in word and in deed, in actions and in words. You can pick your title. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. And don't let, this is Paul talking to Timothy, and don't let anyone look down on you because uh, because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. In your actions and your words, be an example to every believer. Be someone, Timothy, that people can look at you and say, how did you do that? How do you do that? Show me how that's done. I I want to follow what you're doing. I see that you're doing it, Tim. Help me get where you are. Hear how that's different than don't judge me. Don't judge me. You're not my judge. Timothy's not their judge. But if they're someone who is wanting to follow Jesus, Tim can help them. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy, 
take care in this. Make it important to you. It matters not just for you, but for others who desperately need an example. We have an example in love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let Jesus' love, let God's love be an example. He loved you and I before we loved him. He loves those who will never love him. He loves beyond people's merit or qualities. And we can follow that example. And last, we have an example in Titus about really living in a hostile world, in a pagan world, in an unbelieving world. Verses 7 and 8. And everything, set them as an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing, they have nothing bad to say about us. Live a life so that those oppose you see value in you. Years ago, years ago, I worked for Harris County, and I worked in a part of Harris County that was uh, a lot of drama, uh, a lot of antagonists from outside that were very much at odds with our director. It was a very uh, politicized place. I, uh, I found it an amazing place to work because... It was probably the furthest place from God that I've ever worked. Um, people were outwardly hostile towards believers. Everybody was. And uh, so many people were wanting, you know, threatening my boss's life. And uh, my boss was a bit of a, a lightning rod for militants and that kind of thing. And I was working with some of these militants one day, and one of them complained to me, it's too bad you work for this person. I said, you're going to make it difficult to fight this person because we like you. Because you have proven to be fair and honest with us. They did not want, they didn't start that way. They didn't want to like me. Um, they had a vote to get me fired, which 
was one vote short of passing. But at the end of the day, they liked me, and I liked them. If you are not willing to have challenging examples in your life, 2014 will look very much, I mean, 15 will look very much like 2014. Unless you have some outside thing that demands a change in your life. If we could stand. God really...